0: My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. And today, my guest on the show will be a musician, a keynote speaker, a futurist, and an author named Gerd Leonhardt, who is most recently the author of a very interesting book called Technology versus humanity, the Coming clash between men and machine. So hi Gert and welcome to Singularity FM.
1: Hello there, nice to, uh, nice to connect here.
0: Fantastic, so Gert, uh, let me start our conversation today with a simple admission. I've been doing this for seven years now and obviously I've been doing it very poorly because I never knew that there was another person who also is very interested in bringing in the issue of ethics within the realm of technology, and let alone someone of your standing experience and kind of breadth and width of work. So I admit this was a great gap in my kind of uh, education, if you will, personally speaking. And I only discovered you maybe about a month, a month and a half ago, okay uh, when i saw your book mentioned for the first time and since then it's been revelation i read the book i watch a bunch of your keynotes i watch you even going and playing some hardcore riffs on the electric guitar which were quite phenomenal too
1: okay thank you thank you so uh, <laughs> it's a small it's a big world right i mean we there's so many people doing interesting things it's amazing
0: and it goes to show you something that i've been saying uh, many times before that no matter what we do and who we are our ignorance would always end up dwarfing our knowledge in the end of the day.
1: <laughs> yes, that's where the machines come in, I suppose. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I'm supposed to be Socrates, so I'm supposed to know that I don't know better than anybody else. But uh, sometimes I even, I even forget that. So uh, anyway, let me start our conversation first with this question. If you were to introduce yourself in a couple of words... Who is Gert Leonhardt?
1: Well, uh, I would say I'm, you know, first and foremost, a humanist, you know, somebody who comes from the background of humanities, you know, music, art, uh, and then secondary technologist, maybe. Uh, But a futurist, you know, somebody who's interested in the future. Uh, A lot of public speaking, that's already quite a few words there, right? Uh, And and maybe a change agent for my, for my clients, for my people that read my books and uh, a traveler, you know, I, I travel a lot, but also, you know, in thoughts, I travel.
0: That's, that's very well uh, said. So if we take the, the last idea that you're a traveler, is it, tell us a little bit about your journey. Where did it start? Where did it originate? And why, why did you decide to undertake such journey in the realm of philosophy? What was it that grabbed you and told you, Gert, this is what you have to do with your life?
1: Well yeah, okay, it's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. But um basically I started off with uh when I was a kid in Germany, I grew up in Germany, right? And and uh I was I was always interested in philosophy. So I went to college, university in Bonn in Germany to study uh, theology and philosophy. Uh but then very quickly you know, I I was always a, a musician. So music took over. I moved to San Francisco, uh then I went to Berkeley College in Boston, I became a musician, a producer. Um, so I, I really come from the from the creative business, right? uh, and then the mid 90s I I discovered the internet, and I I discovered with one swoop that the internet was going to be the biggest change in how we live and how we do things, and so I became an internet entrepreneur. I had some a bunch of people invest in my companies. I I did about a dozen startups, but I realized very early that my strength wasn't actually in necessarily monetizing my ideas or building companies, but to Uh, to develop foresight to help people shape their own things with my foresight. I was always very early. For example, I started something like Spotify uh, in 1999. (laughs) Of course, it was way too early. And then I wrote a book called The Future of Music, which is what Spotify is modeled after, uh, really, uh, Music Like Water. Um, And uh, that became a bestseller. So I realized very quickly that I was good at seeing the future uh, well, in the, what I call the immediate future, you know, not not far away, five years or seven or eight years. Um, and that became something I, I practiced and over the years, and you now it's been 15 years now pretty much, I, I realized I had a gift for seeing that and also for talking about it. And um, it was also a very good mix of the technology background that I acquired in my internet days, but also the humanities background. So I'm I'm more of a business philosopher, technology philosopher, a humanist, and you know I'm I'm very quite unusual in the sense of a futurist. And I'm not totally excited about everything that's far-fetched technology. You know, I, I have I have critique also, and I I prefer to think of myself as a, a nowist. You know, somebody talking about now, but that's not really a word. So anyway, then I started a company five years ago called the Futures Agency, uh, and there's about forty of us. And we help companies to futurize themselves, mostly incumbent companies who are seeing big trouble, you know, car companies, brands, big media companies, uh, pretty much all over the map. Uh, And that has become a huge thing. And now we're doing, we're making films about the future. Uh, And I write, you know, I wrote this book because I thought it was a very good time to think about how humanity is changing because of technology uh, and what it means. Uh, Because the key point in the book is that technology is now basically capable of anything uh Very soon, nothing that we want to do is out of reach uh and then we and then we have to decide why we want to do this and and who is doing it right and that becomes that becomes the key question
0: now before we jump into the book, i want to spend a little bit more time on your own personal background and, and your journey uh because first you you called yourself a traveler but 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 also I want to find out if it 's I mean, you do have a very interesting journey in the sense that you go through music and, and theology to get to futurism and business consulting and, and advising and, and so on. Do you, what do you think does this kind of a background provide that, let's say, the traditional startup entrepreneur may lack or, or may benefit from?
1: I think it's very hard to say. You know, I'm, I think the background in having studied... Philosophy and and the ancient Greek, you know, having started Latin, Greek and Hebrew, you know, (laughs) was kind of a punishment, but, but uh, you you do learn the background of philosophy and how, how, how humans think. And, and that, that becomes a very big asset when, once you've gone through all that stuff. Right. Uh, And as a musician, of course, you're always uh, in a situation where you have to you have to invent yourself. Uh, Most musicians are only successful if they are entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurship and musicianship goes together. You know, if you're not an entrepreneur, you'll never get any work as a musician, unless you're just a genius. Right? But I, I wasn't. So, um, and that's been a good journey. And then understanding technology. You know, as a guitar player, you're always fiddling with knobs and setting up boxes and using technology and, and working on sound. Right. So understanding technology and being excited about technology, that was always a very, very big thing for me. Uh, and so this is how I got into the startup business because I I understood technology instinctively. Yeah? Um, and,
0: and what about uh, theology? Where does theology fit? Back in the day when you studied it in Bonn in the 1980s, and and I mean it was Lutheran theology, wasn't it?
1: Yes. Well, the the thing is, I, I was uh, I, as a as a young kid, I was religious. You know? uh, afterwards, I basically I, I wasn't. It's not about religion for me at all. I mean, what I do today has nothing to do with religion. It's all about ethics and understanding of people rather than some god or something. You know, I, 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 I like Richard Dawkins' book. You know, the the God delusion. I that's kind of where I come from. You know, <laughs> so I, I don't have I have no agenda as far as religion is concerned. I I understand it obviously, but. So that's not really my background, but, but I do understand the sort of discussion about spiritual things and about uh, other things than algorithms. You know? um, I come from that. But in Germany, the the study of theology is very much a study of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as a Lutheran minister, if I had become a Lutheran minister, you end up doing sort of you know, social work, collective work, community work. That happens to be paid for by the church, but it's not at all like in the US. Or,
0: Hold on a second. You are a, a Lutheran minister?
1: No, I, I would have become one if, if I had gone through with it, right? Oh, I see. But see. I, I, finished, I finished the basic studies and then I quit to study music mm-hmm. uh, and, and moved to, to America. So I had always had this call for the, the West, you know, going out and inventing something. And that became something I did from 82 to roughly 2001.
0: Very interesting, okay, so so now we're coming to about two thousand and one. Was that sort of the timeline or the time frame that you started getting interested in in the future?
1: Well, as an entrepreneur, I started about a dozen companies, and I was always very future focused in saying, "Okay, this is definitely going to work i I know this is going to work right? <laughs> and and my investors believed me unfortunately for them because they lost all their money but but uh in the process of of pitching, you know I raised i thought not tens of millions, but a lot of money uh, as an investor. And and so I had a gift for talking about stories and and, and have, having people believe my stories. Right? And I, I discovered that when I was, you know, I pitched at least 200 times for various startups you know, that I did. And then I realized very early that I actually was quite good at pitching and, and also understanding how to present stuff, right, and how to minimize the understand that was required, you know, to actually follow. And so I was almost very interested in the, in the future. For example, when I started this music company called Synific, uh roughly in the early 2000s, it was very much like what Spotify is today, but obviously it was 10 years too early. And I realized when I wrote my first book, The Future of Music, which became a bestseller, um, that I wasn't wrong. I was just always too early. And so then I kind of made a job out of being too early. But today I have to say that I'm not really early anymore. I'm just a little bit ahead of the curve, you know, two or three years because technology has caught up, has has been faster.
0: So if you were to describe what you do before we get into the book, let's say me and you are in the elevator and I'm a potential someone who may be interested in something that you do. And if I were to ask you to give me the elevator pitch, what is it that you do? Can you give it to us?
1: well i think I, I I'm kind of a giant filter you know I explain really complicated things to people that are interested in changing uh, and a lot of my clients you know my company works with over three hundred clients or it's all the way from Microsoft to you know some local government or something right and basically we're translating the important things that are happening around us we're translating that to them to to get them to tackle their future and create it right so it's basically a translation process sometimes i say it's like therapy because well a lot of ceos come to me and say god oh, i don't know what the hell is going on in the world anymore right <laughs> so 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 or the hr people come to me and say these guys these guys don't know what the hell is going on and then they bring me in and then basically i i i kind of coach or we we take this future therapy we, call, we actually call it future therapy which is to open up the thinking and say, okay, this is actually going to happen. This is not Mm -hmm. just some mad people in California. Mm -hmm. This is actually happening and and, and this is very important.
0: Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. So where does the book fit within this picture? Why did you have to write a book? You already have a thriving business. You have done 1500 engagements with, uh, you know, hundreds of of customers in 50 countries and so on. Why write a book and why now?
1: Well, I think the the, you know, I've done this uh, more or less business-centric speaking, and I'm I'm very good at helping business people in, in getting the future and getting ready for it. And there's a huge demand for that because one thing is, for example, that many of my clients don't have anybody talking to them openly about this, right? So when, when you're a CEO of a company with 100,000 people, you don't get an honest take on the future, right? Nobody, nobody talks to you about anything real because you know, you're too powerful and, or maybe too old or you have too much money. Uh, but so that's what I do. But the interesting part is in, in the last couple of years, the biggest conversations I had with people is that they're really worried about technology basically changing every component of our life. And many of them are are good, right? I mean, for example, disruption of businesses and you know new ideas and stuff but also changing who we are as people for example by by augmenting ourselves forcing ourselves to use technology to get better faster and eventually merging with machines uh, and this thought of merging with machines is uh, something that's not as far-fetched as it may seem but it's also very much accepted idea in the US and Europe that is a total no-go right because we are Collectively speaking, not interested in machines, right? <laughs> we just have a whole different culture. You know, we we are that is the last thing that we want, yeah. You know? And and so uh, it became a very big topic among my clients to ask me, saying, like, "Oh, isn't isn't this all going to end with the robots killing us?" Right? Uh, I I don't believe that's that's the case. But I'm more of an optimist there. But so it became a real topic, and then I co- started collecting topics on this technology versus humanity, and the book title is kind of a provocation. It's not actually meant versus; it's more like with threat. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it became that's a big right. topic, right?
0: Yeah, we, we'll get to the title in a second, but I'm trying to kind of lead us and unravel perhaps the idea of what is it that's worrying you the most, Gert? What is what is your greatest fear?
1: Well, in general, you know, let's put it this way: I'm, I'm not really a I'm not really a worry on this. You know, I, I think we're right now at 90% of positive level of technology. I, uh, I think the the opportunities of technology is absolutely mind-boggling. Right? We can solve diseases, we can solve the energy problem, we, we can solve education, uh, we can solve possibly even inequality if we do it right, right. But there's so many side effects of technology that we also need to govern, right? we need to administer, we need to agree on, and, and we're currently not doing that. So my biggest worry is that we're using all the great power of technology, but we're empowering technology in such a way that it is completely just goes out and just sweeps us away, right? And some of that is not a big deal, like we're swept away by Facebook, okay, we can live with that, right? But if we're gonna get swept with the idea of creating a, a virtual reality interface that basically becomes a default, that, that would not be a good idea, right? And, and so it's the balance I'm concerned with. Right? Uh, it's uh, We're going to use technology, we, we're not going to go backwards, we're not going to shut off technology, and we don't want to. Right? But we need to have more precaution about what exactly it will do and who is in charge. Right? This is also a key worry, is that right now I think uh, many of my clients are in charge, <laughs> and that also worries me. But uh, you know, if you think that the future is determined by Silicon Valley and the military, then I am not so happy because um, Yes, they're inventing all that stuff, but should they tell us what, what we're going to be? I think that is a bad idea.
0: Yeah, I have to agree with you on that one very much, just like on many other things, by the way, in the book. Um, and, and generally on, on most of your concerns, in fact. Uh, and actually not long ago, I did a presentation in Rotterdam that's called The Emperor Has No Clothes.
1: Okay, <laughs> that,
0: uh, ended up uh pissing off uh probably the the power of the most powerful and richest people that I know personally, uh, <laughs> at the heart of Silicon Valley, of course. But anyway, so so I can sympathize with, with, with your plight and your concerns. In other words,
1: but ways. you know, but here's here's the important part though is that Silicon Valley is no longer what it was, right? The Silicon Valley used to be the place where everybody was just looking in this direction, and all of a sudden. There's a movement among, as you can see last week with the announcement of the uh, partnership for AI, and, you know, where companies are saying, you know what, we are responsible for what we're creating. Just like the gun guys are responsible for for creating guns and, and, and selling them for, for, for cheap, right?
0: They wouldn't and admit so, but...
1: Yeah, yeah, and this is, you can start feeling this, right? And so it is basically coming to the admission that technology is not the purpose of our lives, right? And that's going to be very hard for the CEO of IBM to say. But that is the underlying reality. I think that they're starting to realize, and and so what is the purpose of a world that is a giant machine? There would be no purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is start. This is starting to be something accepted practice, and I'm certain that in five years, what I call digital ethics becomes a business model, becomes a, a model of saying this is the value of a company. It's going to be about those things. It's not going to be about some app or something.
0: Well, that's that's phenomenal then, because for the past seven years, my thesis on my blog and everything that I had done has gone under the message that, quote, technology is not enough and that we often forget that. The, and and my uh, suggestion has been to propose that we need ethics, which is exactly your message. You even call it digital message, uh, digital ethics, I mean. And right. you have, of course, a much longer history than I do in, in the field. So so that's fantastic. Let's uh, move on now to the sort of the meat of the matter as it is uh, represented by the body of work uh, uh, that's mm-hmm. to say, your book. Okay. So let's start with the title, uh, Technology versus Humanity. Why such a provocative title? And, and just elaborate on that, if you will.
1: Well, I think if you imagine on a sliding scale from 1 to 10, you technology on the left, humanity on the right, all of us are now being forced to take a position. And say, at which point do we put the slider towards humans or towards technology uh, it's no longer good enough to say that technology will solve everything because it doesn't you know technology cannot solve happiness. you know there's no app for happiness and there's no app against terrorism you know uh, despite what Silicon Valley sometimes says, this is what they believe you know if you listen to all of that what they're saying right is that it there's a purpose beyond technology technology is a tool, and so the title is made to say, you know what, if we, if we don't watch out, uh, technology becomes so significant and, and we, can, we can get to this place to where we feel like we can't do anything without any of this. Right? It's like the pilot who can't fly because the entire controls are automated. And by the time it's ready for action, he doesn't know what to do or he's just bored or he's working on his iPad. Right? Uh, and this is happening increasingly. It's it's basically the glass cockpit problem. Right? And if you look that you know, if you if you go into the future five years and technology is everywhere, then you have to ask the questions, are we still capable of doing anything or, or have we forgotten ourselves in this context? And that, that is a very big question. So the title is meant to shake up things. And I think, ideally speaking, we would want humanity on top of technology.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's not going to happen by itself because humanity doesn't make money. You know, humanity is something that is built into lives, and it's just a, it's a human thing that we don't monetize, right? and and therein lies the danger. When you when you just look to monetize, you're not going to go out and say, "I sell humanity." Right? Then you'd be the Dalai Lama or something. You know, I mean, there's just there's no business in selling humanity, right? and so that, that is a steep challenge.
0: Uh, And what would you say? I've interviewed on my show about 200 other futurists uh, like you. And one of them was, uh, or the the first one that comes to my mind right now, kind of on your uh, title, Technology versus Humanity, is uh, the author of Robopocalypse, Daniel H. Wilson, who is, by the way, a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon. And uh, when I asked him, so you wrote the book Robopocalypse, Uh, Are we to fear the robots and the coming of the AI and stuff? He said, well, people often create the mythology that, you know, there's this clash between technology and humanity and that we fight technology in the shape of robots and eventually we win. But you see, he says, this is bullshit because we are technology. We cannot fight technology because we are technology. What, What would you say about that?
1: Well, I mean, this, of course, I've heard this argument many times before. You know, the thing is that, yeah, you can say that we are technology. We are biological, which is technology or chemical. Right. Uh, However, I think that there's two options here, right? Either we're just extremely sophisticated technology so that we currently don't understand how, how sophisticated it will take another 100 years to figure that out. That's one option. And the other option is that technology eventually becomes philosophy, becomes uh, existence becomes consciousness that we will not solve by uh, putting it into zeros and ones. Uh, and that is a, a, a basic question of what you believe. You know? I think at this point it's a moot discussion because uh, we are at that point where we say we don't understand, if we were technology, we don't even understand how we work. Right? And so my position on this is that if we're going to put technology into robots and AI and, and computers and software, let them go and have cognitive computing and let machines think. That's fine. They can think completely differently than I am. That's enough value that I, that, that we can ever hope for, right? Mm-hmm. But what I'm against that is to say that we are technology and therefore our destiny is to merge with technology that we have created. Mm-hmm. Because I believe it's a downgrade. You know, It's, it's not an upgrade because uh, what technology is already doing is it's saying to us that, oh, you know, don't bother with real dating or building relationships just use tinder and you know same result right but of course we know that it's not the same result it's it's a wormhole right it's a shortcut right just like saying that you know you're you're friends with all your great buddies on facebook you know they're they're not friends like regular friends right (laughs) They're, they're just it's a parallel world right and if we understand that technology offers us a chance of going into a parallel world exploring new things and becoming ourselves on the social media web, you know, great. But if we confuse that with ourselves, that is my view, that is where confusion starts and that leads to all kinds of subsequent effects and dehumanization, in fact.
0: Mm -hmm. One of my favorite uh, lines uh, in your book, and I have quite a few very nice quotes that, that I got that we'll get to talk about, but one of my favorite ones is, Technology is not what we seek, but how we seek. Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I think there's a common confusion now in that technology is because it's so powerful. It's so much magic, right? Everywhere you look, it's magical technology. The fact that we can do this is magic. The fact that I can send a message to Namibia, to my son or something through WhatsApp, that's magic, right? And, and every day there's a new magic. I can drive a self-driving car. I have a language translator. I can analyze my DNA. You know, magic, magic, magic. And and that's all good, but at a certain point, the magic becomes overwhelmingly becomes kind of manic, right? Uh, and then and then it takes on its own life, and I think the best example for that it really is Facebook, you know, because Facebook has taken on its own life as a pleasure trap, forcing us into itself, and and we are the content that's being consumed, Like it's been an utter perversion of of friendship, right? and yet. It has its own purpose that I use, right? It's it's not that I don't use it, but but this is the kind of where the tool has become the purpose, right? Right. And face, Facebook has now its own purpose, which is to make money. Uh, and and or uh,
0: Facebook, of course, yeah.
1: And, and that's fine. Yeah, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that as if we believe that this is our tool, now we are their tool, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And if, okay, we can we can deal with that with Facebook. We can we can stomach that, right? But if technology becomes a, a purpose all around us, it encroaches what I am. You know, removes my free will, uh, does things with me that I'd rather not see happening, and reduces what I can do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in support of what you said, by the way, uh, that you know people try to cultivate as many Facebook friendships as possible. Uh, And and that often comes at the expense of cultivating real uh, friendship with real people in real relationship, with real human uh, meat body time spent with each other. Uh, And one example was uh, taken to extreme was, of course, that couple in Korea, which uh, let their baby starve to death while trying to do the best possible things for their virtual baby in, in a virtual world, right?
1: well it's it's kind of a, it's a very tempting situation that technology creates really powerful vortexes you know of of an echo chamber of contacts you feel good doing that right but it's exactly the same than any other drug really it, it It has an, It has sort of a recreational purpose right? uh, and but you know you can have a, a glass of wine in the evening or even more or do whatever you want to do, but you wouldn 't drink a bottle of gin for breakfast uh, and, and, and this is the kind of balance that we currently are missing and so if this goes on, you know the exponential scale that we 're seeing we 're at four now we 're going to go to one hundred and twenty eight and eventually to a billion and 30 steps right You can only imagine what what will happen here if we are exponentially. Uh, hooked on that kind of technology. Uh, we will I can't
0: even imagine myself uh, but we I, will forget ourselves,
1: right. We will oh. we will forget who we are. And and we will become machines ourselves. I like to say as I say in the book, you know, the biggest danger is not the machines will kill us. That'll be a long time before they can do that. Or that they will replace us. The biggest danger is that we become too much like the machine. Mm-hmm. And because it because the machine says, oh, do it like this, you know, switch on the notification, uh, arrange a date to genetic engineering and control what your baby looks like. And it's all these options. Right. And, and and eventually you get to be your machine because that's all you that's all you know how to do.
0: Now, he, I, I supplied this This uh, technology is not what we seek, but how we seek as is, is a favorite quote of mine from your book. But. Is that the thesis or do you have a better, more clear thesis than this? What is your book's thesis, in other words?
1: Well, there there's quite a few summaries and this is one of them is is, is a caution of saying that we shouldn't confuse technology with our purpose. And, And part of that is saying that, you know, we have abundance now because technology is giving us abundance, but technology is not good at providing actual happiness. It's very good at hedonic happiness, you know? I can feel hedonically happy when you like my post on Facebook and I say, oh, that's great. I feel happy for half a second. But <laughs> this doesn't actually do, it doesn't create a relationship, right? And as they say in, pers- in positive psycholo- uh, psychology, um, in this whole school of, uh, of uh, uh, Seligman, uh, he, he talks about perma, which is uh, purpose and engagement, relationships, meaning and accomplishment. And those are all things that, that, are, that happen between people. And so, one of the central theories in the book is to say technology will, will make a lot of things easier, but it cannot be a purpose. And right? it cannot actually be uh, creating this kind of what's called a euda- eudaimonia in, in Greek uh, philosophy, which is contentment in, in Buddhist philosophy. Right? So, my point is that we use technology for all of that stuff, and we can use it as a tool. We should just not look for it to make us happy. Right.
0: right. And you talk about happiness and well being. As things that should be at the center of of our kind of existence, can you elaborate a little more on that perhaps
1: yeah I think when you, when you look at uh, a lot of technological uh, innovations and and new transformations that we 're seeing, for example, whether it 's online banking or, or holograms or very soon holographic travel or you know cancer therapy and and, and you the question we always have to ask, ultimately, what is the purpose of this technology? Is the purpose to replace a human piece that I used to do? Or is it to empower me to do what I need to do? Right? Or does it have its own purpose, which is what I call a secondary purpose, Right? Uh, which essentially is telling me that it's it's good for me, but really what it does, it's good for itself. Right? Um, and that's increasingly the case. Uh, and so sometimes inadvertent, sometimes more overt, Uh, So, for example, uh, a technology that's just now being trialled is the exogenesis, which is to give birth outside of your body. The concept that you would have an artificial womb to have your baby rather than have your actual baby, Um, because, you know, it's convenient, right? And we don't have all the hassle of being pregnant. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a man, what can I talk about? But anyway, uh, I mean. And this idea is so ludicrous because in the end, you know, this is just a way to, to monetize, right? It's is not a human solution. Uh, it's, what it's about actually...
0: women who are unable to give birth uh, to, to their kids because they have cancer in the uterus or something like that, which this would be a solution for them, right? To have kids.
1: Well, this is a very hard decision to make, but you know uh, it's quite different than when you're sick than when you're not right I mean, for example, the fact that forty percent of Brazilian women have cesarean because they can schedule it before they go play golf, you know that that that's an, uh, well it's kind of a weird thing right I mean what can you do Brazilians about that
0: play soccer, not golf
1: yeah okay yeah, yeah <laughs> okay they have tea afterwards or whatever but uh you know I, I think that eventually we also have to distinguish between sickness and disease and what we do with those people then with voluntary uh things that that become an aberration really right i mean uh, this would be just as true like if you have cancer and we have a cancer technology to to change the genes you know that would be office, obviously a, a good purpose right mm-hmm. Nobody wants to have cancer but if i then turn that around and say let me use that technology to create a super soldier right? same technology in principle bad purpose so, so at some point we're going to have to decide what is okay or not and I'm not going to make that decision for a woman, obviously, but I just think in general, you know, if technology gets to that point where it becomes its own purpose, it becomes extremely dangerous uh, and possibly subject to lots of large-scale abuse.
0: Okay, so we got the idea that technology is not its own end but it's rather a means to an end. So, the question then is, how do we sustain that status quo or or how do we implement that idea in reality?
1: Well, I mean, another central statement in my book is embrace technology, but don't become it, right? So that is a political and social contract question. Right? Um, let's say I'm, I'm going to embrace technology, but don't become it. What does it mean? Well, it means, for example, that if I take care of customer relationships and CRM and ERP and so on biotechnology, that's beneficial for customers, but by and large, if they can talk to my digital assistant and get quicker advice, that's the benefit, right? But I'm not going to force the customer to to uh, to wear an augmented piece so they can talk to me, uh, or I'm going to treat my customer like an algorithm. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. the human world is not algorithmic; it's actually completely the opposite. What I call rhythm, right? Human things, right? and so uh, if I force people to then become part of that environment, that would be not a good thing, that's right? So, it, this is really a question of the balance.
0: Yes, but the reply, of course, would be, Look, Gert, nobody's forcing people to do Facebook or Snapchat or Twitter or G+, and to give away all their data for free, as they're clearly very willingly doing so right now <laughs> on by the billions, right?
1: Yeah, but you know, that that's exactly the same argument as saying that nobody's forcing you to buy a gun when the police isn't doing their job and the guns are cheap, right? And if you, you feel threatened, you buy a gun. I mean, uh, most Americans have two guns, right? And there's the same argument saying like, okay, why are they doing that? Because they feel that they're not being protected or whatever the reason is, right? And so it's their own choice. Well, that's true, but let's fix the real problem, which is that they feel like they have to do that because they're not protected, right? And that is the problem we need to fix, just like terrorism as a result of people feeling that their life is utterly useless, right? They they're going to die anyway, right? So, so these are larger questions. And I think that uh, to say that... Uh, Basically, it's people's own choices. Well, that's also not true for drugs, and these are drugs, right? I mean, let's make no mistake about this. The internet is the biggest drug ever invented, and I'm fine with people using drugs whenever within reason, whatever they want to do. But to use drug use as a default way of living, I think that we we, we need some supervision on that on those issues, right? I mean,
0: so where, sure. where does that supervision come from, and how is it going to be implemented?
1: Yeah, well, this is a social contract that we usually painstakingly work out, right? Uh, There are social contracts that govern our lives everywhere. There's a social contract here in Switzerland that you don't drop your paper when you go hiking in the mountains, and everybody will run after you and give you a hard time, right? And this is not not a law. Well, it is a law, but nobody cares about that being a law, but it's a social contract. And it's a social contract that you don't show up drunk for work. And the same social contract says when you're out with the guys after work, you can drink, right? So... It's it's basically this is something we have agreed on, and some of it are regulations, uh, some are laws, other ones are just traditions, and and they clash, right? Mm -hmm. of course. We do need a bottom line on the very crucial issues that we're facing with technology, because technology is questioning every single ethical and value paradigm ever invented the last 200 years, including stuff like automatic killing machines for the army.
0: Absolutely. yeah. I, I actually wrote my master's thesis in 2006. This is how I got into the field was I was doing my political science degree thesis and I was looking for an interesting topic to write on. And I didn't want to do something like World War One or World War Two. So I took the drone warfare uh, and I wrote actually a thesis on artificial intelligence in times of war. And my research was on the drone warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan in 2006 and seven. And at the time, the political science department didn't find it's very interesting or very relevant, believe it or not.
1: Yes, you're also a futurist. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, this question is a question of consensus and a question just like we have agreed that not we shouldn't have any more countries having nuclear bombs, right? And we do have one that is trying. And that is a problem, but we manage. And so the best thing we can hope for is that we have these multiple issues we find conversations and we have treaties and agreements and they're trying to be enforced in some sort, then we reach a place to where it's manageable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not not a place to where we would just stop it, right? Because uh, obviously, you know, for artificial intelligence, we have no way of uh, just saying, well, you can't do that or something, right? But we're going to need to have an agreement on what is okay and what is not, because we cannot leave that agreement to people making money with this very same product that is going to change our way of life forever.
0: Now, you you say that just because we can, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't, which is precisely along the lines that you're talking about right now. And then uh, furthermore, on page 15, you say technology doesn't have ethics, but society without one is doomed. So, and it seems right now, Gert, that we don't have an agreement. We don't have an ethical treaty, as you call it. Which spans across borders, so are we doomed
1: well I'm I, I much more positive than that you know we have a lot of ethics that we actually agree on and and uh, some of them are more sort of ephemeral, like you know we generally agree that we shouldn't kill each other there are exceptions right but uh, <laughs> you know that that is a general agreement okay um, we have a lot of ethics that we subscribe to on a global level uh, that are sometimes hard to pinpoint but we do seem to have the same purpose right we want to live peacefully you know create our own lives have self-fulfillment you know the muslo need permit all these things but i think the process of discussion discussing these really important decisions right for example at what point do you cease to be human if you augment yourself with technology which is becoming possible in a cyborg state you know whether it's internally or externally uh, at what point do you cease to be human or rather at what point do they become human right mm-hmm. and that's a question we have to answer and 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 the other questions are, are like really simple stuff like if we are able for example to, to have abundant energy or abundant medical or if we can end dying should we sell that or should it be free well my view is we clearly should be free because you cannot possibly sell a solution to human suffering well, on, the, on that scale that's bad enough with AIDS medication but imagine you you could defeat cancer if you have a million dollars
0: well let's take those two issues like on a step-by-step basis so first uh, about uh, the the issue of at what point do you cease to be human so obviously I think in order to address that that question we first have to have a definition that's commonly agreed upon or accepted as per what it is to be human mm-hmm. and I would venture to suggest that the definition of what it means to be human is not a common one that we share across uh, humanity, across the planet, and especially it changes, it seems to me, in terms of as the time changes, as the epoch changes, the definition of what it means to be human changes. So in other words, how do you say that something ceases to be which is kind of vague and kind of flexible and changes in terms of time and space?
1: Yeah, I think that's a. I mean, this is the most difficult question, of course, that that we need to ask ourselves and let's see what that actually means. I, I think it's a bit early for the discussion because we're pretty far away from those possibilities. But, but I mean, we we take nootropics right now to perform better at work, right? Uh, of course, we we'll take cholesterol pills and all those kind of things. But you know, those are very very minor things. Well, they're actually major things, but they they are considered to be minor. As opposed to saying I'm going to connect my neocortex to to the to the internet like Ray Kurzweil is proposing, right? Um, my main my main issue with all of that is that we cease to be functional as as a human uh, after we do that. Because what's
0: that mean, Dog? I mean, just let's let's try and
1: well, we, we it. We just couldn't we just couldn't and wouldn't want to be without it anymore. I mean, imagine the possibility of tapping into the you know, with an IQ of 50,000, tapping into a machine with an IQ of 50,000 through a wireless connection of your brain, that would be extremely powerful, extremely, and we would never want to be without it. And so the question is, is at a certain point, what is left for us to be, and as far as Dasein, as they say in German, the existence, right? If we do that, for example, it would probably be quite uh, uh, addictive to... To work in a virtual environment with with a surrounding screen, and then imagine at the end of the day you put that down and you step into this measly world of your two eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's already quite a stretch. And then we have to decide, okay, what does that mean? And you know, do we have to be wired or, or we get fired, right? Wired or fired, or or you know, what are the rules around this? And and what does it take? I mean, in, in many ways, I've come up with this new thing after I wrote the book, which I call the the EPA for humanity. So the Environmental Protection Agency for Humanity. Do do we have to have an agency that says, you know, this is a human thing that we must keep because it's worth something? Well, it is inefficient. It's expensive. It's cumbersome. It's going to be a pain in the butt. But it's something we need to keep. That is a part of, and and do we fence this like a national park, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, for example, in, in Europe, we want to fence privacy, right? We want to say privacy is not something to be discussed. It's just something that we must keep. And it doesn't matter what it means, right? It doesn't matter if that's going to be a pain in the butt for those guys or not. It's just something that we must keep.
0: And you're uh, proposing a similar approach to, to the idea of humanity.
1: Well, and that, well, of course, you know, it gets more complicated there because of the multiple variants of this, for example, if you're sick or not, or, or whatever, right? And and what we don't want to do is we don't want to stand in the, in the, in the way of solving large issues that are beneficial to us, right? So we can't just say that we're going to say, well, you know, that's like saying we don't do any nuclear fusion, right? I'm Um, just
0: trying to figure out if we are able to both have our cake and eat it too. Because you know some of the super protagonists or optimists would say, "Oh, just disrupt everything, go for it full head, and you know let the chips fall where they may," and laissez-faire attitude about sort of the future and and everything. Then others would would say, "Well, we can't go very strict about regulation or you know committees that you propose because that's going to be very ineffective, very inefficient, and it will stop innovation." So I'm trying to see how are you proposing. That we can sort of take the middle path and have our cake and eat it too, perhaps. Well, I think the. Well, can we well, or
1: can we? Well, that's a, that's what I'm working on. You know, I'm I'm working on that whole debate. But but basically, I mean, the book is on the beginning in that debate. It's not a conclusive answer to all of those questions, and, and I'm certainly not in charge of all these questions, not yet. I'm no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, the, the thing is, in the end, you know the. This concept of the invisible hand, the selfie-regulated market, and the power of that, that's all just American stuff, right? And and it's it has worked and it can work, but it's not a recipe for the future. When you have a really complex world and you have to make decisions like this, right? It's like you know, we had a vote on, on immigration two years ago in Switzerland, and all the people who are not connected and who are not international in Switzerland voted against immigration. And now we can't have people immigrate, which is a huge problem. Right? Should we really have people decide on these fundamental issues on a one by one vote? Right. The same happened in Colombia. The same happened with the Brexit. Right. I mean, I, what's I think the alternative, we, though? I think we need to have leadership that actually understands these issues, like some of us and some of the people in this discussion do, and actually have a full time job of just doing that. Um, and because it requires a lot of oversight and discussion and foresight, which most people don't have. And uh, not to say that they shouldn't vote on it, but it's very hard to vote on something where you have no clue what, what in the world you're talking about. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not going to have the public wo- uh, voting on the power of artificial intelligence. Right? I mean, I don't know. That would be a stretch. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think that the thing is, in the end, it's a, it, this is a question of survival for us. Right? We. We need to, we, and we always have in the past, found a way of saying that this is what we need to keep. This is what we're willing to pay. This is the price we pay. This is what we can live with, and that's what happens in a democratic society. Right? Otherwise, we have the tyranny of technology. Right? We have a ty- tyranny that says, "Okay, we can do it." So you know, shut up and just move forward.
0: <laughs> Speaking, let me bring another issue here, though. Speaking of uh, votes in Switzerland, uh, very uh, not long ago. Uh, you actually had a vote on a universal basic income too, and and of course uh, just like uh, you know immigration and just like the Colombian peace plan, it got voted down by a large margin. If I say it was something like eighty to twenty percent, if I remember. Yes, so, but
1: you, that's true. But you know the this vote was actually really positive. You know here in Zurich, fifty-seven percent of people voted for it. Wow. Uh, and the fact that you would have 23% of the Swiss population voting for it is huge, right? I mean, if you have this vote in the US, it would be 0.0000, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and they're willing to pay for it too, right? which is, I mean, this is a huge step forward. So I, if you see it in perspective here, you know, ultimately, I think the question of the basic income is related to what I talk about in the book. It is totally Absolutely. obvious technology will solve so many things for us and, and it has a power to automate and, and make things abundant that we won't need to work like we do now and and this is a a foregone conclusion and we shouldn't be crying about the loss of jobs because the loss of jobs is is just the jobs that that people had to make a living right most of those that don't love being a truck driver or, or or you know cleaning in the airport they just do that because it's a job right so in 20 years we don't need to do that and then we have to find a way to distribute the benefits of why we don't need it. And this is the, tr- the trouble in America, for example, that distribution of collective benefits is just a total no-no. Right? <laughs> and, and, and so yeah, this is- Some would say
0: thought. that's the same with the Brexit vote, actually, the, 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 the uh, uh, consensus is that, or, or one of the, the very strong ideas as why Brexit happened in England is because that's a way of the have-nots to kick at the status quo to say we're not sharing of of any of the benefits that you guys supposedly tell us that we're going to have now and therefore we want to change the status quo no matter what. And so they're going to vote against anything that's associated with the current state of affairs and hence Brexit.
1: Well, the Brexit is the only bet I've lost in 10 years on the future. Uh, So I've I've bet that it wouldn't happen. And uh, I, I was really, the first time I was totally wrong. Uh, on what would happen and that, that's really one of those wild uh, you know those black swans that comes up and yeah. p- i think my opinion on that is was highly rigged up through social media and it shows the power of man- of manipulation mm-hmm. uh just like uh, colombia and, and the the decision not to have the peace accord and I, I mean it's a complex question but i think that some of those direct uh, uh referendums are difficult to handle in that regard and that you don't have an even slate uh, And so sometimes we're better off to have that decision made by the people that I vote for. But, uh, you know, this is. The reason
0: why I'm bringing this in is also because currently we're, I think, observing the same thing happening in the United States, actually, where uh, a large percentage of the population is supporting one candidate, Donald Trump not because of his own uh, personal qualities or character qualities, but rather because he, to them, represents someone outside of the system. And since they have seen no benefit within the system, they want to do and go for anything that would suggest a change.
1: Yeah, well, I I perceive that to be another proof of the fundamental dysfunctional system of American politics and life in general. You know, it's 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 just one of those things where you say like this is just this is like a TV show. Right? It's, well, it's,
0: it's, it's it is like a TV show, but you know, we are here. I'm here in Canada. Even though most of my uh, actually audience is American, my wife is American, and I I have to say I think it's it we're not too different. I mean, Canada is very close. Uh, England, you know, is another example uh we in my opinion are not too different it's not impossible it's it's harder for this to happen here but i don't think it's entirely impossible to be honest and it's just that probably we are a little bit more equitable society perhaps than than and don't suffer those extreme extremities as much as as the us does
1: well, this is a little bit uh, one of my worries that i express in the book is that uh, you know i lived in the us for 15 years i do a lot of business there i i there's a lot of great people there i i feel in general that you know, if we are going to be uh, determined by what people decide in Silicon Valley and at DARPA, that I would fear for the future, Uh, because it it is all just about a a few select things and it creates creates giant inequality. Uh, And now for the first time, you know, two weeks ago, the tech companies got together and said, oh, shit, you know, we really have to be about the benefit of people in society which I find astounding. It may all just be a bunch of fig leaves, but I'm I'm launching, by the way, an open letter on this tomorrow.
0: Right, Uh, but it's showing some progress, which is very, very encouraging.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, for the first time, the admission of saying, not all of that is solved by cool technology. You know, happiness is not an app, Mm -hmm. uh, and neither is a quality, right? These are things that happen between people. I mean, the most important things in our lives happen between people, right? You see, those
0: are the things that I completely agree with you on, like 100%. And that's why why I, I really like and appreciate your book, because you keep reinforcing that message, which I think, especially in Silicon Valley, but also in general, has not had enough coverage, which is the message I've been trying to shout for seven years, kind of.
1: Well, it, it, this is part of the, the challenge there is, you know, relationships between people take building and they take endurance and they have conflict and they go up and down and you build something and at the end you have something solid right that's a ten thousand hour work job you know it's it's huge right and now technology says you know never mind all of that here's a shortcut how we can create an immediate relationship with this beautiful robot right and if you're tired of it you can disengage right? uh and, and that is the promise of of future technology right is that we can have these wormholes that say you know, you don't want to learn an instrument, play with this, and you Im- immediately become Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and it's like, come on, you know, that is not what we are, you know, we, that is not how it works. You know, some processes are just processes that we go through, mm-hmm. and technology can't just say, you know, what? Uh, never mind all of that, here's a way of shortcutting all of that, right? Just give me $5, you know, that's, that's just a lie, yeah? it's, it's deception
0: uh talk to me a little bit about uh, the, your concept of core versus the popular concept of stem
1: Yeah I think that that uh, well we I used to call the uh, the core used to be called heckey right humanity ethics creativity and imagination, which is really the same definition, right? And and one discussion in the book is that, you know, we we tend to focus on those tangible things like, like business planning and and science and technology, engineering, math, right? Because that seems like a safe thing, right? But now it turns out actually anything that's routine can be, and will be replaced by, by a computer. Yes. And a lot of science and technology is uh, ends up being a routine as well, right? Even invention is going to be, I mean, we, we already have cloud biology, right? Having labs run experiments in the sky and, 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 and simulating. them. Right? So I think we, we need to teach our kids that technology is a fact of life and they have to understand that clearly and they should know how to code. I, I agree with that, right? But then is the human things, which are called the algorithms in the book, right? Compassion. Originality, reciprocity—all these, you know, the things that we need to create the group, and we have to study those. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also where the value is being created. You know, the 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 value of business relationships is in trust. It is not in some, you know. I mean, you you can go to a company and say, "Okay, great, you have fantastic technology. I really love it." But how long does that last? A week, right? You don't buy it. It's
0: replaced by the next thing. Whereas right. you're suggesting that the lasting things are what you call core creativity, compassion, originality, reciprocity, responsibility, and empathy.
1: Right. I mean, those are the things that are, of course, I mean, this is a very old tradition of philosophy thinking, right? Is that, and, and sometimes I like to say with technology, we have abundance outside, but scarcity on the inside. So we have all the options on the outside. We can buy anything. We can go anywhere. We have abundant everything, and that will be true. But inside, we still haven't moved on. You know, we still have not found the happiness we're looking for. And how you find that, I'm not going to talk about how you find that. That is a whole different discussion.
0: Yeah, no, but that's a very important point, though. I I mean, even if we ignore the part of how do you find it, uh, the part that, you know, we are surrounded by technology, we're drowning in technology, and it doesn't seem to make us any happier. That's a very important realization to, to have, I
1: think. Well, I mean, the human quality of, uh, you know, relationships and meaning and con- connectivity and actual conversations and friendships and all these things are things that are organic, right? We, we don't perceive those things with our brain. Mm-hmm. Right? They're actually holistic. I mean, we have, we have those things. Uh, as Kahneman said, the philosopher, uh, the, uh, the uh, um, psychologist, Nobel Prize winning psychologist, Daniel Kahneman said, cognition is embodied. We think with the body, not the brain. Right. So if, if, and if we live with a the, with the body, right? we, we are not just this. Right? Um, and, and this is something I really don't like about transhumanism and singularity is this concept that we can have this physical copy of our brain activity and that will be it, right? I think that well, maybe that's eventually true in a couple of hundred years. Maybe. No, I, I don't think so. But it doesn't matter because right now that's just utter fiction. And it's also a very bad idea because why would we do that?
0: tell me tell me what what is wrong with transhumanism in your view what 's the problem with t- transhumanism
1: well it 's a concept of saying that we can be upgraded like a machine and, and that we we are missing something yes, we, we miss lots of things, we screw up, we make mistakes, we kill each other, we, we do all these bad things right. But but if you start saying, well, you know, because you are, let's say, an unfaithful husband, right? So then I'm going to remove the possibility of you being unfaithful, right? Whatever that could mean, I would remove many other things at the same time, and 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 this is just, you know, the world is a mess, and and people are messy, and that is the way that we live, right? And we make mistakes, and we do all these bad things, but but should we then say that technology can remove all of those causes of badness? When we do that, we remove everything else. It's like like cutting out a piece of cancer. You cut out the whole thing, right?
0: But but walk with me a little bit further here because this is one thing where I don't quite agree with you because here's my thing. Technology, education is a kind of technology, if you will, right? It's a way of taking a child, which is an empty hard drive, tabula rasa, as the, uh, I think it was Locke who, who used to call us, tabula rasa, empty tablet, right? Nothing on the hard drive, no operating system, no formatting. And then through education, we become hopefully better people with experience, with making mistakes and all those things how is technology different than education? I mean, education is technology. Books, you love books. You say you love books. Books are technology, right? Uh, uh, even music, uh, you're a musician, your guitar. I, I bet you, you love your electric guitar because I could tell just by the way you were riffing on that thing, which was awesome, <laughs> by the way. But But that's also technology. And imagine if we didn't have the technology and we had Mozart, no one would have ever known he existed because the technology wasn't invented or if we didn't have the technology of paints when Van Gogh was born, for
1: example. Yeah, I mean, that, that's all true. But, but of course, the, the multitude of technology is a huge difference. I, I mean, having a piano or ha- having a printed book or having the internet, you know, that's all one thing compared to technology actually going inside of us, right? because it's still on the outside of me. Right? And I, that, those are tools, nice tools. But when I make myself a tool, by putting technology in myself, then I become the tool, right? I'm no longer a tool maker. I'm a tool. Mm -hmm. I'm made by somebody else's tool. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we cross that border is that this is not just going to be us being a better tool. It's a fundamentally different species.
0: So, for you, the cutting point is to not become a tool. As you say, we should embrace technology, but not become technology or another way of saying that is. To use the tool, which is technology, rather than to become it—that's for you the point of no return, is it?
1: Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, basically yes, but I wouldn't put it that black and white. For example, the right now we're using tools like restaurant pills, right? And and they, even though they're mostly not working, but you know we think they are working. And it makes lots of money. It's you know it, it can be done. You know, it's not such a bad thing. But there's a certain gradual cutoff point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we need to define what that is. And as technology is has not been able to go inside my bloodstream and eat my cholesterol uh, uh, with a nanobot, right? But that is becoming possible. And then in 10, 15, 20 years, basically everything is becoming possible. Right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and, then, and then we can say, well, it's possible. So that's a good thing, right? Because eventually it will cover uh, our range of what we are as a human, in a completely different way, right? And none of that was a big deal it in would the beginning shift of it. the
0: meaning of humanity. I agree with you entirely. But again, as I proposed beforehand, however, isn't that what has happened in the past, in, in every epoch with the great discoveries, with the Renaissance uh, and, and so on, the age of reason, humanity, the meaning of the understanding there sure. has shifted.
1: I mean, if you would say that at a certain certain point we are... Uh, inevitably merging with technology and becoming tools and, and robots and machines ourselves, then that is a logical conclusion that this is a good thing, right? And I'm saying that I think this is not a good thing because mm-hmm. we would at that point lose so many other things and we could not compete in this world of machines. Because I mean, an artificial intelligence that, that runs at 50 quadrillion uh, calculations per second with an IQ of 500,000, is in any case going to be more powerful than me, no matter what I do, right? And then, so then the question is who who, who runs it right? and, and what does it aspire to, right? And it won't be conscious, but okay, but it will still run my life. And I think that at that point is we have to ask, we have to answer that question as to, you know, who is in charge of that system at what point.
0: Yeah, I agree with you very much to that extent on that topic very much, that we have to be careful not to become... Uh, tools or, or mere cogs in the machine uh, of, of, of technology and of artificial intelligence. But let me ask you more about your views, however. Uh, what's your take on the technological singularity? How realistic of a concept it is? And, and, what are, and if it is, then what are our chances of, of surviving it?
1: Well, I agree with Ray and the singularity people on this concept that uh, it's inevitable that computers reach the human capacity, and and I would say probably quicker than we think. Uh, I think Ray says twenty nine, and then he said twenty five. You know, I think it's realistic, something like seven years. Seven um, years. for for a computer to be able to match the capacity of the human brain, and at that point, you know, basically multiply itself. Oh, I think
0: he was talking about 2028 20, about that. So I would say 11, 12 years, maybe. Yeah,
1: I think it's going to be a little bit earlier than that because of, of various things that we're currently oh, it's in. possible,
0: yeah. I mean, we saw Deep Blue uh, did uh, defeated AlphaGo, defeated the best human Go player uh, months ago now, and that was not expected to happen for another 10 years. So Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, however,
1: I think that the, the Deep Blue uh, experience also shows what is really happening here is that these thinking machines you know, and cognitive computing uh, they think, but they don't think like we think, right? Yes. Uh, they they think like a machine thinks and, and they'll probably get lots of better. We think holistically with everything that we've got, we think and feel and exist, right? Yeah. We exist. And the computer will never exist. And it, 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 can, it can simulate existence, right? It can probably be good at that uh, eventually, but it can never actually exist in the same way. And so I think it's plenty if we have cognitive computers that can think on their own in some way that they think, right? They don't have to think like us at all. It would be plenty useful if they can do that and solve our global problems that we have, right? Mm-hmm. But we should not give them the authority to say that because they do that, then everything they do is the right thing to do, right? Because we know from airline accidents, for example, that this is just not the case, right? These,
0: yeah, I agree. Right? I agree.
1: And 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 so this is, is a good thing to use, but is it the truth or the only solution? And this is we where... have
0: to be careful. In other words, as some people have called this the black box problem, right? Yeah. Where something happens within the system, and because no one is aware of what hap- what and why it's happening, no one can control or question it or fix it. And we're all just basically fate accompli. We're we're forced to accept the result, whatever it is.
1: And well, it, it, yeah. I mean, if if we don't practice what we can and what we do, we lose the skill of applying it. We forget ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so this starts with dating and Tinder. That's really low level example, and it goes all the way to using intelligent digital assistants to go shopping or take care of your education or basically abdicating our own thing. And this is very much like you know the 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 accident of Air Force over the Atlantic from Rio happened because of pilot error because yeah. of bad performance and because the machine disengaged and said, I can't do anymore, take over, and they misunderstood the machine. Right? And exactly the same thing happens here with us. As we give all that power to technology, we get lazy and we, we, we retract, right? And we, we get unskilled.
0: Right? In other words, we should, be, we should make sure that we can still fly the plane and not get used to be running it on autopilot all the time.
1: Well, on the, uh, in the case of the airplane, I would argue we should let the machines fly it completely.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, you, you can't have that halfway solution, right? But uh, that, that would solve the problem there because there's no human right to fly an airplane. It doesn't matter, you know? Uh,
0: so that's part of the problem. How do you draw the line? For one thing, it's okay. For another thing, it's not. That's what I'm trying to bring here to light.
1: Yeah, well, I think the question we have to ask ourselves uh, when we use technology, am I using this in such a way that it's empowering what I can still do, or am I abdicating my responsibility? For example, if there was a voting uh, bot, right, that would vote for me based on my own, you know, that already exists, but I'm sure somebody is mm-hmm. going to offer it, right? Mm-hmm. Or if I use that exogenesis artificial womb, right, so I can uh, go about my work and have the baby just at five o'clock on Friday before I have drinks, you know, that would be a question of saying, am, am I disempowering myself? And, and that's the question we have to ask.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, to be honest with you, if you ask my wife, she would say, oh, I'm all for having that baby with, you know, exogenesis rather than doing it the way. And you know, if I try to say anything, she would just say, oh, you're a, you're a man, you don't understand.
1: So, Yeah, so, but well, this will be the same argument of saying, you know what, I'm fine with a nuclear power plant in my, in my front yard because I need lots of power. You know, I, I need to have lots of power in my living room and the power plant is fine, right? And, and this would be saying, well, you ignore everything around it. I mean, it is quite clear, for example, there's people arguing that kids shouldn't learn languages because mm-hmm. they can use apps. Mm-hmm. Kids learn, shouldn't learn how to write by hand because they can speak to a computer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, every single doctor that knows anything knows that these are essential processes for development of the brain. And ah. so we we are not just going to say, well, you know, let's let's take this wormhole shortcut, and and then we use fifty of those shortcuts, and then and then we stop existing, basically. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And so the solution that you propose is what you call digital ethics, and you have uh, a number of rules and 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 rights uh, that that are not the final solutions, but are rather the the starting point of a discussion, the launching of a conversation, and you kind of. Make yourself vulnerable by putting uh, a number of proposals. Would you share a little bit about those with us?
1: Yeah, I think that they're they're still very uncooked. You know, they're kind of raw in many ways, right? And the stuff that we should or should not do, right? For example, I think we need to uh, we need to not put efficiency over humanity. So that means. If if we are in a situation where people can do a good job at work, we should not get rid of them just because they're not efficient enough. Right? No, you know,
0: I agree. Sorry for the interruption, but I agree with you 100% on that. And if you want to read the antithesis of your book and what I would have called the efficiency utopia, is my next uh, my my next uh, podcast episode on the book by Robin Hansen called The Age of M, which okay. in my view is the exact efficiency utopia where democracy is ineffective and inefficient. Uh, one vote, one person, one vote doesn't work well. You know, we don't get enough work out of people because uh, uh, we are not uh, uh, working to live, but rather we're living to work and all those things in, in one package. So that's the antithesis.
1: Anyway. Yeah, yeah I, well, this is, uh, this is just, well, I, I think it really comes down to how you view the world and how you view people as to how you would make those decisions you know. uh and i I generally I wouldn't think it's a good idea to fo- forbid people those options except for when they encroach on other options <laughs> you know that other people may have, or if they create a drug like uh atmosphere right. Mm-hmm. So to where I know I'm no longer actually in charge with what I'm doing because I'm, I'm inside of this vortex. Right, I can't decide any other way. And in many ways, Facebook was also a great example for that because no matter how hard you try, you really can't leave Facebook now. Yeah. Uh, I, we're hooked, right? And Especially if we leave,
0: if you have a small business or like yeah, a big business like yeah. you do,
1: yeah. So, yeah we can kind of laugh about this you know it's not a big thing but but when we create this dependency on other technology like intelligent digital assistants and and all these things that are coming and and all the big technology companies are creating this giant brain in the sky that they want us to use and and, and this is our outsourced duplicate of myself right mm-hmm. uh and, and so there there's a way of of meeting that so again my my recommendations are is to say okay there's a bunch of things we should discuss that all start. we should not, right? Yeah. So, for example, I think we should not allow a uh, human-machine convergence or, let's say, cyborgism, uh, except for medical circumstances and those kind of things that are required, but not just because we can and create essentially a new breed of man. Uh, People will do that anyway when they can do that, but the question is the one of social acceptance of that being normal. I mean, it's bad enough if uh, I I think the number is like sixty percent of Brazilian women are searching, have have uh, body alterations, right? Uh, They are uh, go go get uh, plastic surgery just because they can, right? That's that's a a choice of them. But for us to say that these choices are becoming normal, right? Mm -hmm. That means you're no longer normal if you're normal, right? Uh, I mean, how would you exist in a world where everybody has this and you don't because you're some...
0: The problem, though, is again the same problem we had with being human. How do you define what's normal?
1: Well, all we have to do is define the bottom lines of that, right? Uh, And and, uh, like, like we have now, right? It's normal behavior in parentheses or within a certain degree of how we behave as kind of a social contract, right? How we do things. And the rest is regulation. For example we regulated the oil companies uh, and the, you know, but we're not regulating the data companies and they are the new, the new oil companies, the most powerful companies in the world. Right. Yeah. And so there's no oversight. There's no regulation. There's no taking responsibility. There is some, but not much. And now they're saying, well, you know, we should really think about what that does to people in society, which is a good move, you know, but it's, it's high time that we think about that as being important. Right. It's not just important to create, to crank up the economy. Especially because ninety five percent of it is in the US, right? What do what do we get from that?
0: <laughs> well, I agree I agree uh, with with many of your proposals there that, 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 that they're important starting point for a conversation and I agree that they're not quite cooked yet, but I don't think how, you know, I can do any better myself or anyone else at this moment. So the conversation is very important and then hopefully together we can come up to some kind of consensus. Yeah. Let me talk a little bit something about here, the next step, which is capitalism, because I've interviewed, as I said, a couple of hundred people and especially economist futurists, uh, such as Robin Hansen and a number of others, it's easier for them to see the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Can you comment on that? How do you see that as a futurist yourself?
1: Well, i i think that's quite obvious and when when we look at technology uh is that we're moving to what has been referred to as post capitalism right uh or a, a situation to where if if things are abundant because technology makes them abundant right then the business model of of that used to be collapses i mean the business model of the music business has collapsed because music is free or it's like water right mm-hmm. so so you have 20 million songs on spotify you pay 10 dollars you know what does that mean per song it means nothing per song right Right. Uh, and so, but that is a good thing. I I'm now imagine if everybody paid the $10 or even $1, right, we would go back to a good system, right? So it's basically capitalism in a different way, right? Uh, and it's, I think ultimately we're ending up at a place where music is abundant, films are abundant, transportation is abundant, banking is abundant, health is abundant, water is abundant, energy is abundant, right? And what does it do to capitalism? Well, it evaporates the whole idea of consumption. And that's only 20 years away. And also evaporates the idea of work.
0: And what happens to all the struggling musicians? Do they all become futurists like you?
1: Well, you know, for for musicians, it won't make much of a difference. Or for artists, right? Because they haven't made any money anyway, you know, pretty much any time they haven't made any money. So (laughs) so it's, It's like the idea of being out there creating your business model is nothing new to musicians, right? And this is why I'm saying like a lot of artists will be very well prepared for this world. But I, I think it does force us to think about the underlying rules of capitalism, consumption, profit, growth. You know, I think we're going to see a stock market in the next five years that is going to be built on the triple bottom line scenario, uh, on larger values, you know, the sort of Star Trek economy that people have <laughs> suggested. You know. um, we will have to think about that as a natural development eventually.
0: Garrett, I have to say that I am really tremendously enjoying our conversation with you, and I can keep you for ages, but I know you already had <laughs> yeah, a, a, <laughs> a, huge, a huge day behind you, uh, and actually, where were you presenting today? Was it in Portugal?
1: I was in Lisbon uh, yesterday for the digital uh, summit, and it uh, was, was a great event, and this morning I did a uh, documentary shooting with uh, one of the local companies and did a small speech to a bunch of business people. And oh. Tomorrow I go to India. So.
0: <laughs> oh wow! Okay, so we'd better not keep you too too late then. So let me ask you: for those of our audience who are interested in following your work and what you do, what's the best place for them to find more about you?
1: Yes, I have. I have a lot of things online. So if you if you have the next five years on the lonely island. And, and, and an internet connection, uh, which is unlikely, of course. Then you, know, you have to download all of it. But uh, you go to futuristgerd.com. GERD is G-E-R-D, like gastrointestinal reflux disease. Same thing. futuristgerd.com. Uh, I also have uh, a lot of stuff on YouTube. It's, uh, I have a shortcut called GERDtube, G-E-R-D, tube.com. That's how I get to my YouTube channel. Um, and, of course, the book is at Tech vs. Human. So tech uh, where you can also read quite a bit in the book. right? And in general, if you just Google GERD and Futurist, you'll, you'll find more than enough. And most of my presentations are a Creative Commons licensed, and all my videos are so you can download them and re-edit them. And That's do it very easy.
0: interesting. They're Creative Commons licensed. Do you put that as a requirement when you go to speak? How does that work?
1: Well, so, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but it's basically, if it's public, then it's public, and you can cut it and edit it. You cannot just use it and say it's yours. You know? that's, that's the Creative Commons attribution license. But it's, uh, it's basically for public use, and all my images and slideshows can be reused and, and are widely reused. Mm-hmm. Uh, my current book is not Creative Commons. It's, it's with the publisher, but but uh, you know, in reality, a lot of these themes are floating around everywhere.
0: Fascinating. So, Gert, we've been talking today for nearly 90 minutes. Okay. What is the best way to wrap up our conversation? What is the best single message that you would like to send our audience away with? What should we take from Gert Leonard, the futurist,
1: today? (laughs) Yeah, I I think that, um, well, there's three core messages. One is I think we have to really understand that the world is changing exponentially. And you can't just sit there and observe and, and expect that to be a learning process. It's going to be so fundamentally different in five years and ten years that that you you won't even recognize a lot of things. So understanding exponentiality is crucial.
0: As uh, you say, if we sit and wait, we're dead.
1: Yeah. So that is something. Where, and the second the second point is is that uh, to get more awareness on these topics about technology and what it does. That changes the way that you respond to create your own future, and, and I think the third point would be a borrowed from uh, from David Bowie: the future belongs to those who can hear it coming. Ah. So, if you are, uh, and I think this is a very uh, important point, if you can hear it coming, you automatically start creating things that are what you want to see. And the worst thing you can do is to not pay attention when it's coming. Uh, and, and that is a process i think that no matter whether you're a businessman or an artist right you have to have foresight on what's coming in the next five years or plenty if you if you could do that right uh, and to get tuned up to that because otherwise i think that uh we make we may get to a point where we feel out of touch or out of control
0: where's that reference coming from by the way is it a song of david bowie is it i can't bring up right now
1: no, no, he was quite a visionary, and he he quoted those things all the time. Uh, in fact, the the theme of my first book, Music Like Water, is from David Bowie, and he he dropped those stuff in the media all the time. Uh, wow. So, so it's basically, I mean, of course, he was the first one to create an ISP, right, an internet service provider. Mm-hmm. And um, I think as, as a summary, you know, my, my position on technology is widely positive and 90% good, right? We need to make sure that the unintended consequences and the the side effects and the externalities, so I, we, we have to make sure that they're not going to be bigger than, than the positive. And, and we're at the juncture now to where we have to think about what that means. And and uh, we have to get every politician and every public official to be accountable for that.
0: I think that's a fantastic point to to stop and digest our conversation and to ponder the parting th- thought that the future belongs to those who who can hear it coming. So with that Kurt Leonhard, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.